Well, let's ask God to speak to us now as we come to look at Nehemiah chapter two. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look again at your living word and your written word. And Father, we pray this morning that as we look at it and as we hear it preached, that you would help us to hear what you're saying to us, that you would help us to understand what's going on in the passage. But more than that, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. Whatever's going on in our lives just now, whatever it is we need to hear this morning, would you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, forget about Storm Kira. I want you to imagine that Storm Kevin is hit and East Belfast is flooded. Well, Billy, he was in his house when the water started coming up and uh, he managed to climb up onto the roof of his house. So there he is on top of his roof, stranded on it. But Billy's a follower of Jesus. Billy is a committed Christian. And so what does Billy do? Billy starts to pray. Lord, I know that everything is possible for you. And so, Lord, I have faith in you. Will you rescue me? Amen. Billy waits. He's prayed and he has faith. A man in a rowboat comes along. Hey, come on, get in. No, says Billy. I have faith and God is going to rescue me. Fair enough. The man rode on. Then a motorboat came right up beside the house. Come on, get on. No, said Billy. I've been praying about this and I have faith. God is going to rescue me. Fair enough, the man in the motorboat says, and he goes on. Finally, this big helicopter hovers over Billy's house, and a rope comes down, and the man from the helicopter says, Come on, grab on, I can rescue you. No, says Billy. I have faith. I've prayed about it, and God is going to save me. Next thing, Billy finds himself at the gates, the pearly gates. And he can't believe that God has let him drown. And he goes in front of Peter and says, I can't believe this. He says, what's gone wrong? He says, I had faith and I prayed and I trusted God to rescue me. Peter says, look, he sent a rowboat, a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you want? Silly story. But there's a point to it. And the point is that what God requires from us is not just that we pray about things but that we also take action. We're to be people of prayer and action. And that's what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. We're going to see that Nehemiah was both a man of prayer that we saw last week, but also a man of action. If you missed last week, uh, you you missed out on Nehemiah chapter 1. So let me very quickly, in about one minute, try and fill you in on all of last week. Here goes. First thing you need to know is that Nehemiah was a man who lived about 400 years before Jesus. He he was a, a civil servant in the Persian Empire. He was cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in Persia. But he wasn't from Persia originally. Originally, he was from a place called Judah, which was a few hundred miles away. And basically, his ancestors had been carried off and he'd ended up living in Persia. But he was a Jew. He was one of God's people and he loved his homeland and he loved his home city of Jerusalem. Anyway, one day, as he's living in the the capital city, or the the city that he's in, Susa, his brother comes from Jerusalem. And he says to him, Nehemiah, things are terrible back home. He says, a lot of us are living there now, 
but were far from God, and the walls of the city are ruined. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. As he thinks of his people back home not living for God and being far from God, it breaks his heart. As he thinks of Jerusalem in ruins with its city walls broken down, it breaks his heart. And so last week at the end of the passage, what we saw was Nehemiah starting to pray, praying for the people that they'd return to God, praying for the city that would be rebuilt. And so that's what he's been praying for. He's been praying for the city. He's been praying for the people. But what Nehemiah recognizes is that he needs to do more than just pray. He's praying, but he recognizes that he needs to do more than just pray. And and you see that he knows that at the end of his prayer in chapter 1. If you have a look at verse 11, you're going to see that there. He prays that God would give him success in the eyes of the king. Nehemiah knows he's going to have to go to the king and he's going to have to get out of the job he's doing to go back to Jerusalem to take action at what's going on there. So that's the background. Let's have a look at our passage. If you remember last week, we heard that Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem in the month of Kislev. That's our November, December time. Do you remember? The the king was down in Susa, sunning himself in the summer. Well, if you have a look at verse 1 of chapter 2, you're going to see that it opens in the month of Nisan. And that's about spring. That's, That's kind of April, March time. So it's been a number of months since Nehemiah heard about all the trouble in Jerusalem. It's been months since his heart was broken. And for months and for months and for months, he's been thinking about Jerusalem, he's been praying about Jerusalem, and in his mind, we're going to see he's been planning what he might do. But anyway, it's the month of Nisan, and this is the first month of the the Babylonian year, uh, and it's probably a big feast, and he's at this big feast, and the king has had some wine, he's been enjoying wine, uh, and Nehemiah comes and he brings him another glass of wine. But this time, When Nehemiah comes before the king, if you look at verse 1, he cannot stop the sadness of his heart showing on his face. The sadness of his heart, it shows up on his face. You know what plastic happiness is, don't you? You know what that is, don't you? It's, It's a fake smile. It's a big fake happiness that people put on their face as they go about their lives. They might have real sadness in their situations. They might have real sadness in their hearts, but they go about life with a big plastic smile, a big fake smile on their face. Look on Facebook, look on Instagram, even look around in church, and we can see that to some degree. Sometimes we feel a need, don't we, just to to put on a happy face, even when life is not going okay. But there are times whenever that doesn't work anymore. There are times when we we just can't do it anymore. And the reality of what's going on in our hearts expresses itself on our faces. And folks, I just want to say that that's a good thing. Please don't feel you need to pretend that life is all good and put on happy faces in church. Church is to be a place where we're real with each other and real with life. But anyway, Nehemiah comes before the king And the real sadness in his heart shows on his face. Look at what it says there. Verse 1. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I would not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness 
of the heart. Hey, Nehemiah, you're not sick. So why are you so sad? What's up with you? What's wrong with you? Now, you see, Nehemiah has a choice here, doesn't he? He has to answer the king, but there's two things that he could do. He could turn around to do what we normally do. Oh, no, I'm fine. Honestly, everything's okay. No, nothing's wrong. It's all good. Or he could be honest. He could be real. And he could tell the king what is really making him sad. But there's a risk if he does that. You see, because what's making Nehemiah sad is that the walls of Jerusalem have not been rebuilt. And it was actually this king that stopped them being rebuilt. If you read the book of Ezra, you're going to see that the people started building the walls. And then a bad report went to the king. And the the people said, listen, if they build the walls, they're going to rebel against you. And so this king, King Artaxerxes, said, stop the walls being rebuilt. And so in effect, if Nehemiah says to the king, I'm sad because the city's still in ruins. He could be in trouble here. There's fear in his heart at this question. There's panic in his heart at this question. And you can see the fear and you can see the panic at the end of verse 1. See what he says there? He said, I was very much afraid. Very much afraid. He's afraid of what the king might say or do if he tells him what's going on. And I think there's another reason he's afraid. I think he's afraid because the moment he'd finally been waiting for has arrived. Have you ever been waiting for something? You've been waiting for something to happen. You've been looking for something to happen. You've, in your mind, you've been planning for it. You've been looking forward to it. And then suddenly it happens and there is a fear. If you've ever proposed, you know that. You've been thinking about proposing to someone, you know, you, you've bought the ring, you've got the plan, and then it comes to the time of doing it, and there's just this deep fear, a feeling of illness and sickness and panic. Or maybe you've been applying for a new job and you've wanted to change your job, and so you've put an application, application, application. Finally, you get through the interview stages, and you've got offered this new job, which means leaving your old one. And there's panic, and there's fear. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Well, I think this is kind of what Nehemiah might have been afraid about too. He'd been dreaming about rebuilding the city. He'd been planning about rebuilding the city. He'd been praying about going back and rebuilding the city. And finally here, God opens up the opportunity for him to take the first steps to doing that. And he's just frightened about it. Maybe he's frightened about what the king will say. Maybe he's frightened he'll go back to Jerusalem and he'll fail in his task. Maybe he's frightened of the opposition he'll face if he goes there. Maybe he's just afraid of the unknown. He's afraid of the work that God has for him to do. It's, it's scary what God wants from him. And folks, that's the way it is. You see, whenever God calls you to do something, there is an element of fear. When God calls you as a congregation or as individuals to step out in faith and trust him and do something for him, that is scary. Really, really scary. It's frightening. And I'm convinced, folks, that sometimes fear is the one thing that stops us doing the things that God has for us to do. 
I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that fear can become a barrier that, that we look at and it stops us from stepping over to the other side and doing the things that God wants us to do. Think about it. I, I, I can guarantee it. There'll, there'll be people in here and you've thought about sharing the gospel with a friend or family member for a long time. And you've prayed about that for a long, long time. And it's on your heart. You, you really want to do it. You, you know that you want to do it. You've, you've thought about how you might do it. But how many times has that kind of door opened up and you've slammed it shut because of fear? All of us have done that, haven't we? And my guess is that there may be some of you here this morning and you know what? You actually want to follow Christ. You want to be Christians, you want to live for Jesus, you want to know God, you actually want to be followers of Christ and the thing that's stopping you is fear. What will happen? Where will that lead? How might my life change? What might be different? What if I fail? What if I make a mess of it? Maybe you're here this morning and, and fear is holding you back from following Christ. See, that's what fear does. It acts as a barrier that stops us from, from getting to the place where God is calling us to go. But what I love about Nehemiah is that even though he is afraid, and he is, he says, I was very much afraid, he doesn't let fear stop him doing what God is calling him to do. And instead of looking at fear and trusting in his fear that he feels he has faith in God to, to do what God is calling him to do. And so even though that he's afraid, look what he does in verse 3. He, he tells the king the problem. He tells the king the problem. May the king live forever, Nehemiah says. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? There you go, he said it. He, he, he's got it out there. He said what needs to be said. He's taking the first step of faith into doing what God is calling him to do. He's told the king why his heart's broken. He's told the king why he's sad. And I reckon when he, when he spits those words out, I imagine he's still afraid because he doesn't know how the king is going to respond. What's the king going to say? What's the king going to do? Is he going to sack him for this? It's kind of like insubordination. You know what, King Xerxes? I'm really sad because you stopped the walls being built. But how the king responds, it must have just blown his mind. How the king responds, I don't think Nehemiah could have imagined in a million years because look how the king responds in verse 4 he effectively says okay Nehemiah tell me how I can help look at verse 4 the king said to me what is it you want okay Nehemiah that's making you sad what do you want what, what do you want to do about it Nehemiah what do you want me to do to help you he could never have imagined a response like this not too long ago that the king had been dead set against the rebuilding of Jerusalem but now all of a sudden he's for it do, do you see what's happened here do you see what's happened to king Artaxerxes do you see what's happened to this man who worshipped pagan gods do you see what happened to this man who is all powerful and mighty in, in the Persian empire do you see what's happened to him he's had a change of heart and a change of mind He's been changed. 
And it's God who's changed him. God has changed his feelings about Jerusalem. God has changed his mind about the city. And folks, this is what God does. He changes hearts. And he changes minds. He changes lives. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that that God changes hearts and minds? Do you believe he has that power? Do you believe he's able to do that? You should because he can. And folks, I want that to be a real encouragement to you this morning. It's, It's a real encouragement to me. Because what that means is that the people I know who are dead set against Jesus, the people I know who who don't like him, the people I know who don't want to follow him, the people I know who want nothing to do with God, what I know is that God can change their hearts and minds. And I want that to encourage you folk as you pray for people and you think about people in your family and your friendship groups who hate God and want nothing to do with him. I want you to remember that God can take their heart of stone and make it soft. And I want to encourage you this morning because it also means that God can change you. And God can change me. I don't know about you, but there are things in my life that I don't like. There are things in my mind that I don't want to be there. There are attitudes I harbor that need to be gone. And time and time again, whenever I've tried to change those things, I've not been able to. And maybe you're the same. But the good news for me and and the good news for you is that God can change them. Maybe you're here this morning and you need transformation in your life. You need something to change. You need a new life. You need a transformed life. And maybe for a long time you've been trying to change yourself with no hope and no results. But what I want to say to you this morning is that that God can change you. If you're not a believer and you put your trust in Christ, he'll change you. And if you are a believer and you ask him to change you and you're honest with that and you really want that change and you pray to God and ask him to change your heart, he'll change you. Artaxerxes, his mind and his heart is changed and he listens to the problem and he says, how can I help? And at this point then, what does Nehemiah do? He, he prays very quickly. Look at verse four. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So he shoots up this little arrow prayer. Sometimes whenever you think of prayer and I think of prayer, maybe you think of these very long prayers with your eyes closed in your bedroom or wherever you pray. But what I love about this is that Nehemiah is standing in front of a king at a party. And the king says, what do you want? And Nehemiah prays. He just prays silently and quickly. And he prays and he asks God for something. What does he ask God for? We're not told, but I think it's boldness. And the reason I think it's boldness is because of what he asks for. I I tend to live by the principle, if you don't ask, you don't get. I'm one of these annoying people, you know. I want something, well, I'll just ask and see how it goes. That's how I live. And what I love here is that before the king of Persia, that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He asks for the things that he wants and for the things that he thinks he needs. And I think he prayed for boldness. So what does he ask for? He asks for three things. Very quickly, he asks for permission to go and rebuild the wall. Look at verse five. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Hey boss, um, really what I'd like you to do is to give me a new job. 
a job back in Jerusalem, and what I'd really like that job to be is to make me the chief builder of the city. Any chance? Do you see what he's asking for? He's asking for a completely new role. He's asking for a completely new position in a completely different part of the empire. Goodness me, Nehemiah. And then what does he ask for? Well, he asks for safe passage. Verse 7, he says, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive safe in Judah. Hey, uh, King Xerxes, listen, I'm I'm just thinking of how I'm going to get to Jerusalem. uh, And it might be tricky to get through the borders. So could you just give me a letter so that I can get through? You know, from a new job in Jerusalem that I'm hoping you're going to give me? And then what does he ask for? Well, I think this is probably the most audacious of all. He asks for the provisions he needs to build the city and to build the temple and to build his own house and to build the gates. Hey, King, you can just fund all this as well, could you? Look at verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Hey, King, could, could you give me a letter so I can get all the stuff from your forest for free? Any, any chance you'd foot the bill for all the rebuilding that needs done? He asks for permission to go. He asks for a safe passage. He asks for the provisions for all the work that needs to be done. And he gets it. He, he gets it all. He gets every single thing that's needed to do the work that God has called him to do. He gets every single thing required. Take a look at the end of verse 8. Nehemiah says, And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my requests. He gave him everything. But you notice what Nehemiah recognized? He recognized that this was actually God providing through the king. Do you see that? Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, because of God at work, because of God changing his heart, because God was at work in this whole situation, then the king said yes to everything I asked him for. You see, what Nehemiah recognizes here is that it was God who provided for his work. And folks, as a congregation, I think there's something in this that we need to be convinced of as we go forward as a church. As we go forward trying to do the things that God has called us to do, the thing that we need to believe and trust and be convinced of is that God will provide all that is needed to accomplish his will. Let let me say that again. God will provide all that is needed to accomplish his will. If God calls us to do something as a church and it's what he wants, he'll provide for it. Look at this guy over here sitting. I don't know about you, but in a sense I feel like we're Nehemiah. Out of nowhere we receive a hundred thousand pounds and then God sends this guy who has such a heart for this sort of community and a heart for this work and a heart for teenagers and a heart to do this job. I don't know about you, but 
six months ago, ten months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, I just couldn't have even dreamed of that. But this is what God does. God provides everything that's needed to fulfill his will. And folks, that is also true of your life as individuals. If God is calling you to do something, if God is calling you to a specific task or a specific role or a specific job, God will give you everything you need to accomplish that job if that is his will for you. If he's calling you into ministry, he'll provide all you need. If he's calling you to be a young life leader, he'll provide all you need. If he's calling you to be a missionary, he'll provide all you need. If he's calling you to stop doing something in the church to do something else, he'll provide all you need. If he's calling you to do something outside these four walls in the community, he'll provide all you need to do his will. Folks, we have a big, big God with endless power and endless resources. And what we see here in Nehemiah is that if God is calling us to do something, he'll provide what is needed to do it. And the good news is the opposite is also true. And I mean the good news. You see, if we're coming up with something that we want to do and God doesn't want us to do it, the resources won't be there. They won't come. But for his will, he'll provide everything that's needed to do it. But what I love about chapter 2 is not just that God provides these things, but God also provides something that Nehemiah hadn't thought about. I joked earlier on about being forgetful. You know it's true, I'm a little bit forgetful. And I forget about things. And here it's lovely, Nehemiah hasn't forgotten about something, but he just hasn't thought of it. He hasn't thought about protection. He hasn't thought about the protection he might need. He might not just need letters to get through, but he might need protection on the road to Jerusalem. And what I love here is that God provides something that Nehemiah hadn't even thought about. Look at verse 9. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. The king also sent an armed guard with Nehemiah to get to Jerusalem. And folks, this is also what I love about God. We might have our plans. We might think about what we need to accomplish God's will. But even if there's things that we've not thought of, even if we thought of, thought of all the things we can think of, but there's something that we've not considered, God is going to provide what we need anyway. Everything that's needed to accomplish God's will, he'll provide. Next week, we're going to see Nehemiah arrive in Jerusalem. And we're going to see what he does whenever he gets there. And... Um, if you read chapter 3 at home this week, <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll find it quite a strange passage. And we're going to see what he does when he gets there. But this morning, all, all I want to do is remind you why this passage is here. It's here to remind us that although prayer is good and important and right, it should never be an excuse for inaction. Prayer should never be an excuse for inaction. It's here to remind us that as a congregation and as followers of Jesus, not only are we to pray, not only are we to identify problems and to make plans and, and to seek provisions, but we're to actually act. We're to be people of praying and doing. And, and you see this in real life. And I'll give you a couple of silly scenarios. Well, I'll give you one silly one and one not so silly. I want you to imagine that I've put on some weight. 
I have put on some weight. But I want you to imagine that I put, imagine I go out for kebabs with Dan over the next few years, okay? And, and in three years' time, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm a large, large man, okay? Now, I, I recognize that this is causing problems for my health. I realize it's causing problems with me as a minister. I realize it's just causing lots of problems for my mental health. I realize that this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And so what I do, I pray and I say, Lord, you know that I'm overweight. You know that I'm unhealthy. You know this is causing problems. Please help me to lose lots and lots of weight. Amen. Now that is a great prayer, isn't it? Asking for God's help. But imagine I just hope that God's going to zap the pounds off me. Imagine I don't start to eat healthier or start to exercise or start to regulate my intake. Imagine I just pray about that. Am I going to lose any weight? Is God going to make the calories in my chocolate not count? No. You see, prayer without action is not what's required. Think of a marriage where the couple are struggling. It's not like it used to be. And it's devastating to them both. And so what do they do? They, they pray about it together. And they say, Lord, our marriage, it's not how it used to be. We've grown distant. We've grown apart. Please help us, Lord, to restore what we once had. That is a great prayer, isn't it? But if they don't take action to try and fix things, it's not going to get better. If they keep staring at their screens over dinner instead of each other, they're not going to get better. If they keep living in separate rooms, sleeping in separate beds because they've got used to their own space, it's not going to get better. They've asked for help. But asking for help implies that they're going to do something about it. Folks, this is how we're to be be. Prayer is good and it's right and it's vital. It shows our complete reliance and dependence on God. It is necessary. But we're to be people of prayer and also people of action. Is there something in your life just now you've been praying about? Is there someone in your life you've been praying for? Is there a situation in your life that you've been praying for for weeks and months and years? Well, humbly can I say to you, maybe this morning is the time to get up and not just pray about it, but take action. Do something. Ask for God's help and act to do something about it. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Nehemiah and we thank you for his example, a man of prayer and action. And Lord, thank you that as he stepped out in faith, as he moved on beyond the fear, that he saw you at work doing amazing things that we're going to see next week and beyond. And Father, I pray for each one of us, whatever step it is this morning that you're calling us to take, help us to resist trusting the fear that we feel and instead trust in you have faith in you and take the step we need to take action. Father, thank you for your word to us. Help us to obey it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.